morning to all again. I, you notice I don't have my Coach Bill shirt or hat on now either. I ought to preach in that some Sunday, although it would be distracting, I think, don't you? There's a story about uh, President Calvin Coolidge, one of our least known presidents, that he was very well known for being a man of few words and very straight to the point when he had anything at all to say. There's a story that after attending church one day, someone apparently asked him what the preacher had preached about. So Mr. Coolidge replied, sin. Well, what did he have to say about it, the person asked him. And he paused for just a moment, and Coolidge replied, well, he was against it. (laughs) That's good, huh? Of course, we're all against sin, right? I mean, that's easy, isn't it? That's a given if we're followers of Christ. But you know what? Even as believers, I think sometimes we can grow complacent about sin. Not about the world's sin. We seem really concerned about that. We look all around us. We see what's going on in our world and in our city. It grieves us. It sometimes angers us. We're not complacent about that. What we're complacent about is our own sin. I think we're sometimes blind to the reality of how sinful sin really is. And that sounds redundant, but it's really not. We're not aware sometimes of how utterly sinful, how incredibly evil, how blatant an offense against a holy God that sin really is. And one way we could say that the whole Bible is the story of God and his wisdom and grace and how God dealt with our sin problem. Now, we just saw the kids up here in Bible Bowl, and they memorized Scripture in Bible Bowl. One of the very first verses that the kids learn is the A verse, okay? The little ones learn it first in a shorter version, what we sometimes call the ABC verses, uh, the short versions, and that is all have sinned. They learn all have sinned. And when they get a little older and they're able to learn more, they learn the whole reference and the whole verse, which is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the A verse. So from the very beginning of Bible Bowl, we're teaching children this foundational doctrine of our faith. Later, they might also learn Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which says there's no one righteous. No, not one. The clear message of Scripture, throughout Scripture, these are just two verses, throughout Scripture, the clear message is that we all have a sin problem. And that this sin problem can only be remedied by blood. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of animal sacrifice. But this was just a shadow, as Hebrews tells us, of the perfect sacrifice to come. Because the Old Testament sacrificial system just covered over sin. It didn't cleanse the conscience, and it didn't totally remove sins from the sinner. But in the New Covenant, the New Testament we see that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was sinless himself, and thus he was able to fully absorb the wrath of God as the substitute for all of us who would receive the free gift of salvation from sin and forgiveness of sin through his shed blood. This is the new and living way that we have a relationship with God the Father. So before we come to Christ for forgiveness of sins. We are, as the book of Romans tells us, slaves to sin. That is, 
We can't help it. Slaves are compelled to obey their masters, and they don't really have much choice in the matter. But when we come to Christ, the Word tells us that we are no longer slaves to sin. Now, when we're in Christ, because of the Holy Spirit that lives in the hearts of believers, we finally have a real choice. We can resist sin, not on our own, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, which equips us, which enables us to run from sin and to pursue righteousness. Now, these things are factually true in Scripture, yet our experience tells us, and the Word reflects that experience, that though there's the reality that we are no longer slaves to sin, that that old person that we were is dead to sin and alive to God through Christ, we also know that we are all still capable of sinning. This is a picture of something we see in other ways throughout Scripture. There's a dynamic tension between the accomplished fact of the matter, the already, and the outworking of that already reality, the not yet. So we have the already and we have the not yet. For example, Jesus, this is in another context, but Jesus has conquered death. Scripture is very clear about that. He defeated death on the cross. He proved it by rising again from the grave. Yet we creatures still experience death. So we have the already, Jesus has conquered death, and we have the not yet, we still die. We who are in Christ, believers in Jesus, will in a very real sense never die. This is affirmed in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked. Yet, even though this is the reality, okay, this is the already reality, we're only fooling ourselves if we think that we will never experience physical death. We all will, unless Jesus returns before that day. Young and old among us will die. So we have the already and we have the not yet. We will never die, yet we do die. Now, the same thing is true of sin. We have this already and not yet. We are, Scripture tells us, dead to sin. Yet we see that we still must wrestle against sin in ourselves. Now, there are some Christians who believe we can attain a state of what they call sinless perfection. I don't believe Scripture teaches that. I think it's true in one sense, but it doesn't happen until we're with Christ in eternity. That's when we experience sinless perfection. In this world, even Christians still and will sin. The Apostle John affirmed this truth in 1 John chapter 7. I'm sorry, about chapter 1, verse, beginning with verse 7. It says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then there's the verse that Dave quoted during communion. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he goes on to say, if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Imagine calling God a liar. 
If we say we have no sin, that's what we're doing. So we see in this passage the reality of our ongoing battle with sin within. There's that sin within, and we're at war with it. It's what some theologians call indwelling sin. And we also see in this same passage of Scripture, we see that wonderful remedy that God has given, confession of sin, repentance, which brings forgiveness. We have to remember that in this passage of Scripture, John was writing to Christians. So Christians battle sin. It's an ongoing, it's a lifelong battle as God roots out sin from our lives. Now, last Sunday night, I had the privilege of speaking to the basic youth, and I told them that I like that phrase, root out. That's because if you've ever tried to get rid of a weed, you know that you can't just yank it out of the ground, right? You have to dig down deep to the very bottom of the roots to get all the weed out, because if you don't, it will be back soon in all of its ugliness sprouting forth. Sin is like a weed in our hearts, and there are always weeds to kill. So we are dead to sin. That's an accomplished fact because of the blood of Christ. But sin doesn't know that, and sin won't accept that. There was a Japanese soldier in World War II, and his name was Hiru Onada, and he was trained in guerrilla warfare. And he was being groomed to go behind enemy lines near the end of World War II and be left with a small pocket of soldiers to make life miserable for Japan's enemies and gather intelligence in the process. So on December 26, 1944, Onada was sent to Lubang Islands in the Philippines. And his orders from his commanding officers were very simple and very direct. Here's what his orders were. You are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. So that's what he did. On one hand, you have to admire his determined obedience, but on the other hand, he attacked people for years literally decades after the war was over. The war ended less than a year after he was sent to the Philippines. But Onada and three of his fellow soldiers didn't know it, so they kept fighting. And over the years that followed, they survived in the jungle by probably eating coconuts, but they probably also, not probably, they definitely raided farms and they attacked villagers. And years passed in the jungle with these four soldiers still fighting World War II long after it was over, performing their sworn duty of harassing the enemy at every turn and uh, gathering intelligence where they could. Apparently, they didn't gather very good intelligence because the war was over and they couldn't figure that out. At a certain point, when most everybody they saw was dressed in civilian clothing, they began thinking that this too was a deception from the Allied forces to lull the Japanese guerrilla soldiers into a false sense of confidence. They considered the fact that every time that they fired on one of these people dressed in civilian clothing, shortly thereafter, search parties would arrive and they would hunt them. Over time, They had gradually let their solitude twist them into thinking everybody was the enemy, even their own fellow Japanese, who would occasionally come and try to 
talk them out of continuing to fight, and urge them to come home. The four of them were whittled down to two when one snuck away and surrendered and another was killed in a skirmish. And then in 1972, 28 years, 28 years after World War II ended, Onada's last soldier was killed in a fight with a patrol. And then finally, just a few years later, after 29 full years fighting World War II after it was over, he finally surrendered himself when his original commanding officer came to the Philippines and convinced him that the war was really over. Now, this soldier, Onada, just died three years ago. And so it is with sin in us. The war is over, folks. Sin and death are defeated. Yet that sin nature is still alive, it's still kicking, it's still squirming in each of us. It's still conducting guerrilla warfare against us. It's still attacking. It's still wounding. That's why we must fight it. Because forgiveness of sins or not, and we can rest and find peace in God's forgiveness of sin, sin is utterly sinful. We see at least a couple of places in Scripture where the Apostle Paul addresses this reality. We see it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, which reads, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is a recognition, though the outcome of the war is long since decided. In our case, it's not just 29 years, it's 2,000 years ago, folks. The battles inside each of us continue. There's another significant passage that talks about this idea, and that's in Paul's letter to the Romans. This is a lengthy passage. So if you have your Bibles, you may want to look it up and read along in whatever version you have. So hang with me here if you don't and listen to this. Paul begins in Romans chapter 7 with verse 13 by referring to the law. He's referring here to the Old Testament law. And he writes in verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Some versions say utterly sinful. So here we see our sermon title at work. Become sinful beyond measure or utterly sinful. The idea here is that the law was designed in part to show us how truly sinful, how incredibly awful, how offensive to God sin really is. And then Paul continues in verse 14. And here's where we begin to see the battle within. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it 
to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands this morning, but I think every one of us here can relate to this line of thinking of Paul here in his letter to the Romans. He writes in verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right. I can say amen to that, but not the ability to carry it out. He writes in verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see this tug of war going on inside himself, this sin within, this war with the sin within. In verse 23, he says, I see in my members in myself another law, waging war against the law of my mind. We've all been there. We've all been there. We all will be there. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are all there daily. We're all there daily. Now, the hard thing is sometimes we see sin as those big things, but we know as we read Scripture that sin is little things. It's in our thoughts, right? We know that. On the one hand, we should say that what Paul writes here makes us normal. It makes us normal. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that Paul is not using this normalizing to make excuses or make light of sin. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. After all, he begins this section by saying that the law exposes sin for what it is, utterly sinful, sinful beyond measure. He says also, I have the desire to do what's right. He writes, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So Paul's simply recognizing a reality that's in all of us. We have this already, and we have the not yet. Just a chapter earlier, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So again, we see that we are encouraged to fight this, folks. We're encouraged to fight the sin within, the indwelling sin. Do not present your members to sin. The idea there is don't go in your mind where it's going to draw you towards sin. Or don't go to that place that's going to draw you towards sin. So Paul's admission here is that we still battle indwelling sin, which is utterly sinful, and it is not a call to complacency for any of us. It's not as if he's saying, oh, well, this is normal. We all kind of still sin, so just accept it, just get used to it. Not at all. He says, by no means, in very strong language. You know what? There's a lot of things that are normal 
in this life that we don't just accept. Just because it's normal doesn't mean we want to accept it. He also recognizes something else that's critical for us. We cannot batter, battle sin with our willpower. We can't battle sin with willpower. Sin, even in the believer, is still too strong, and we will lose if we try to fight it in our own strength with our own will. It's only in Christ, it's only in Christ that we have any hope of rooting out sin from our lives. So even as Paul acknowledges his dilemma, which we all must acknowledge if we're going to be honest with ourselves, he immediately points to the solution. Wretched man that I am. Wow, what a dilemma. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul didn't want us to be self-deceived. He wanted us to be sure that we realize that we are all in the same boat. We're all sinners who are deeply, desperately in need of a Savior. He wrote of the law as something that helped show how malignant, how deadly that sin really is. And in that sense, the law to this day is still important to us. Even though we don't live under law, we live under grace. Yet the law still serves a purpose. It still reveals sin. The reformer John Calvin wrote that it was proper that the enormity of sin should be revealed by the law because unless sin should break forth by some dreadful and enormous excess, as they say, it would not be known to be sin. This excess exhibits itself the more violently while it turns life into death. There's the idea of dreadful and enormous excess. When we look outside of ourselves, when we look in our world, we see that dreadful and enormous excess. We saw it at work in a church in Texas last Sunday, that dreadful and enormous excess, and we think that's that sin out there, and we don't think, again, of the sin within. Calvin added that the tendency of the law is to excite the dormant sin within us into active existence and to reveal its true nature. Look at it this way. What happens if I tell you, don't think of an elephant? Of course, everybody here is thinking of an elephant. You think of an elephant. And if you need to think of an elephant because it's ready to stomp you, then it's a good thing that I told you something that actually makes you think of that elephant. So it's important to remember that the law, in our case, the clear identification of what is sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament still serves a purpose. Just like me saying, don't think of that elephant. It's getting ready to stomp you. The law helps us see sin for the deadly thing that it really is, so we're not deceived. Why else would we continue to see lists of sins in the New Testament? We see these lists in several places, and we have to note that many of the same ones are mentioned again and again. I found eight lists of vices or sins in the New Testament, and I won't read them this morning, but here they are for your reference if you want to copy them down and look them up. But one thing is clear as you look at all of these lists and you read through them. The New Testament denounces a wide variety of sins. And also what's clear is some breach of the Ten Commandments is seen in most 
of the sins that are listed in these eight lists in the New Testaments. It's also hard to miss that all eight of these lists include some category, all eight of them, some category of sexual sin. Now, Christians are often accused of having an excessive reaction to such things, but if we do, it's because we're guided by the Word of God as our authority, and Scripture has a reaction to these sins as well. Of course, these eight lists of sins that we read in Scripture are not comprehensive. In other words, everything that is sinful is not on these lists. There are other places in Scripture that identify specific sins, but they're just not in a list form. But I did a quick look at these lists of sins in the New Testament, and here's what I learned. Sexual immorality is listed specifically six times and implied in the other two. Murder and idolatry are mentioned four times. Envy, slander, sorcery, and lying are listed three times. Deceit, sensuality, evil, covetousness, malice, strife, faithlessness, jealousy, orgies, drunkenness, and anger are all mentioned twice, while all the other things on these eight lists are mentioned once. So we don't want to make a theology from lists, okay? But I think the frequency of some of these things on these lists should at least cause us to take note of this and wonder why. The other thing that we can't do is we can't blame Satan. The devil made me do it. We can't blame the devil for our sin, although he does tend to take full advantage of the sinful nature that's in us. We see this in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So sin's in us, folks. It's in us. It's not out there. But we do have an adversary who capitalizes on the reality that sin is in each of us. And that enemy is a liar and a deceiver. One of the ways he deceives us is by telling us, you're okay. Or he tells us that something that the Word of God clearly identifies as sin. Well, it's not that bad. Paul wrote of fighting our flesh, resisting our sinful impulses, whatever they may be. The enemy encourages us to indulge them. Go for it. Go ahead. Enjoy it. That's what the devil says. For example, there's one sin that's not mentioned specifically by name in any of the eight lists that we looked at a moment ago, but uh, that sin is worldliness. Let me read 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So the enemy knows this, and the enemy knows that the things of the world are enticing to us. They're attractive to us. So he takes advantage of his knowledge of human nature. The enemy cannot read our minds, okay? Only God is in our heads all the time. But he takes advantage of what he's learned through millennia of observation, and he happily does his very best to indulge us when we want to indulge ourselves anyway. Besides being a liar, the enemy's also a deceiver. If he can't bring us down, 
and draw us away from Jesus by sins like worldliness, for example, he will tell us how worthless we are to the point that we are condemned and useless. But take heart, my brothers and sisters, because in the chapter immediately following the passage in Romans 7 that we just read and we're focusing on this morning, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Of course, the key phrase here is in Christ Jesus. For the believer, that is, there is no condemnation. So even recognizing that we struggle with a sin nature, even acknowledging that we are in an ongoing war against our own sinful flesh, even remembering that repentance must be a lifestyle that we cultivate because we must always be confessors of our sin as soon as God brings conviction. Still, we can rest in the sure and certain hope of redemption because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. A great hymn that we just happened to sing this morning, if you believe such things, has this verse. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let that grace now, or let that goodness we sing, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Prone to wander, folks. Prone to wander. Prone to leave the God I love. That's a poetic way of saying what we're looking at this morning. That's a poetic way of recognizing our sin nature. We leave God. We leave God, in a sense, every time we sin. We turn our back on him. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though indwelling sin is normal for us as Christians, we must resist just going with the flow. And the good news is that because we are in Christ, we can resist. Folks, we can resist. We now have power to resist that we didn't have before we were in Christ. Paul noted in verse 18 of Romans 7 that we looked at a few minutes ago, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Think about this. Before we know Jesus, before we're in Christ, the willing is not present in us. Unbelievers think they are good. Christians know they're not. Remember the A verse. All have sinned. You know what all means in the Greek there? All. It means all. Unbelievers can certainly do good things by God's common grace, but the willingness to resist sin is not in them. It is in us. The willingness to resist sin is in us as believers. Paul's saying, I can do this. You can do this. A chapter earlier, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. That's a very strong, no way, no how. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death 
or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. There's this recognition. We have this battle. We're human. We have these natural limitations. For just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification. That's the fancy theological word for changing us to be more and more, day by day, into the image and likeness of Christ. Jerry Bridges writes this, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that nearly every waking hour we sin in thought, word, or deed. Even our best deeds are stained with impure, mixed motives and imperfect performance. Who of us can ever begin to say, I have loved my neighbor as myself? Sin is like that guerrilla warfare that the Japanese soldier Anata waged for almost three full decades after the war was over. And it's like the already and the not yet that we've looked at. We read the already in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. We read in Ezekiel chapter 26, I'm sorry, that should be 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's talking about a soft heart, folks. Hearts of stone are hard. Stone is hard. Flesh is soft. These verses tell us the already. We are a new creation. Present tense. We have hearts of flesh. Present tense. God has removed our hearts of stone. Present tense. Yet, we also recognize the truth that the practical outworking of that change of heart is not instantaneous. This is a verse we read a few moments ago. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is the not yet. This is the not yet. The already and the not yet live in tension within all of us. So we have this indwelling sin that we must battle, that we must not be satisfied to let rule us, not willing to let it overrule the new creation that we already are, the heart of flesh that God has given us, that we have soft hearts that are ready and willing to be pricked by our conscience that's informed by the word of God and changed. We're not willing to let these things happen. This change, this transformation is progressive. It's progressive. It happens over the course of our life and it's never complete in this life. Yet this reality should not be used as an excuse for sinful behavior. We are called as saints Saints, set-apart ones, right? To live a life set apart for God. We're called to be holy as He is holy. That's a pretty high thing to attain to. So many places in the New Testament. We can sum up like this what the writers are telling us. You are saints. Now act like saints. Be what you are. 
In the military, they have a phrase for officers who break the rules. It's called conduct unbecoming of an officer. Let us cooperate with the Holy Spirit's transforming influence so that we don't exhibit conduct unbecoming of a saint. Another word for that is sin. Conduct unbecoming of a saint. Another word for that is sin. We look around us and we see that the world we live in is a sin-sick place. But let's never become so preoccupied with all the sins out there, which are pretty easy to identify, pretty easy to see, that we lose sight of the need to deal with the sins that are in here and in here, in our hearts and in our minds. God has given us, folks, God has given us the tools to deal with sin. He's faithful. He's given us his word so we know sin from righteousness. We don't have to guess what's right and wrong. We know because we have the word. We also realize the utter sinfulness of sin because of how Scripture paints that. He's faithful to give us his Holy Spirit, which illuminates his word to our hearts, and it convicts us of sin, and it brings us to repentance. And he's given us, above all, the sacrifice of Christ, which brings us to forgiveness from sin at the very moment we confess and repent of that sin. So, folks, let's take full advantage of these means of grace that God has provided. And let's continue to daily battle this already defeated foe that still indwells each of us. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have indeed given us these means of grace. We're grateful, Father, that your word shows so clearly how utterly sinful that sin really is. Father, we pray that you would never allow us to be complacent about sins in our lives. And we look at our lives and we see, oh, gee, we're so much better than those people out there. We don't do this and we don't do that. But, Father, we also know that we are called to a higher standard. We are called to holiness. We are called to be holy as you are holy. So, Lord, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed bring conviction of sin. Your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word so that we can see the utter sinfulness of the things that we think, the things that we sometimes do, Father God. And we're grateful, Father, that because we're in Christ Jesus, this isn't to condemn us, Father, but it's to bring us to repentance so that we can uh, confess this sin and have it removed from us, Father. We're grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus that removes sin from us, Father, and you choose to forget that sin and we'll never again hold it against us, Father God. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that we live under the new covenant, under your grace, Lord. But help us to always, always, always be repentant and be open and have hearts of flesh, Father, that are easily convicted of sin and ready and willing to quickly repent when you bring conviction to us. In Jesus' name, amen.